0: We are going to do the Father's Prayer, but not now. We're going to do it at the end because David, who's one of the dads, is downstairs in the door. (laughs) And uh, we just want to be able to make sure that he can be here for that. So we'll do the Father's Day prayer um, at the end. But um, so remind me if I forget. Thank you, uh, Edward, for that story. And I guess thank you, Liam, for the the beautiful drawings. Um, What talent to be able to illustrate those. Uh, It's a good lesson for us all. Roy says hello. He is in New Zealand. He's speaking for our youth rally there. He's the keynote speaker. And if you're wondering why I'm wearing Roy's uh, thongs, it's because I tripped down the stairs this morning and sprained my toe. So I couldn't get into my shoes because that hurt too much. And so I'm wearing Roy's thongs. They're quite comfortable. Um, but yes, just explaining in case you're wondering why I'm dressed this way. Um, it's been, he, he comes back next Thursday, so I'm going to be looking a lot more haggard the next time you see me, um, so you can pray for me as well. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to be doing um, kind of a series, so I'm going to be doing part one today about what it means to be a Christian, and then in a fortnight, um, I'll be sh- doing the second part, which is, what does it mean to be a, dis- what are, what's the cost of discipleship, and is it worth it? And then the following week after that, I will be speaking on why does church, members, does church membership matter? And if so, why? Why does it matter? Um, so it's a kind of a series on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a church member. Um, so today is part one. In 2016, the Australian... Um, Statistic you know Bureau of Statistics created a census, which, if you remember, um, was very difficult to get onto. And um, Australians were asked which religion they affiliated themselves with. And according to the census, 32.6 uh, percent of Australians identified as having no religion, which was the highest group. After that were the Western Catholics with 24.6 percent. Followed by 14.6% Anglicans, 4.1% Uniting, 2.9% who who said they were just Christian, um and I didn't have space to put it on there, but Islam was two point eight percent, Buddhist two point seven percent, Presbyterians two point four percent, Hinduists, uh two point one percent, Greek Orthodox, one point eight, Baptists one point six, Pentecostal one point one. Seventh-day Adventist 0.3%, which works to be 62,948 um, individuals who said that uh, they were Seventh-day Adventists. Now, when you add up all the various Christian denominations, um, it, it comes to 52.2% of Australians say that they are Christians. So, 52.2% of Australians uh, consider identify themselves as Christian. And in Melbourne City, um, that percentage is lower because there's a higher percentage of Australians in Melbourne saying that they have no religion, which is not a surprise considering uh, the demographics of, of Melbourne. But what does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean, uh, having trouble clicking, sorry, Ben. There we go. What does it mean to be a Christian? Does it mean that you were born into a Christian family? And so, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I grew up Christian, so I'm a Christian. Does it mean that you have personally accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Does it mean you've been baptized into a Christian church? Does it mean that you attend a Christian church at least once a month? That you act like Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? The first time the word Christian was used was in the first century A.D., those who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus and the death and resurrection um, began to spread the good news about Jesus. And despite the fact that they were imprisoned and persecuted and killed for sharing their faith, you can see that Christianity spread very quickly um, and, and multiplied throughout um, that region of the Roman Empire. And the book of Acts and the Bible describes some of those missionary journeys and some of the reactions of, of the people. And we come to uh, chapter 11, and if you have your white Bibles, it's page 885, and it's also on the screen for you. And this is what it says. It says that the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles, or also the Greeks, about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So in other words, the Jewish converts to Christianity uh, because of the persecution, started scattering all over the place. And wherever they went, they shared about Jesus. So in the place called Antioch, the Greeks, the, the, those who used to be following the gods of the Roman Empire, become Christians themselves. And this is what it says, that Christian missionaries named Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul, go to Antioch, to to work and disciple these people. It says that both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers or the disciples were first called Christians. So that's the first time that word Christian appears. And that name has stuck to this day. But the meaning behind the word Christian has evolved over time. Because even though here it says that the Christians were disciples, and we're going to come back later to look at, well, what is a disciple? Things changed. Things happened in history that changed the meaning of that word. Here's what happened. In the first century, if you were called a Christian, you're, it was uh, a dangerous thing because of the persecution. But by the fourth century, Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire converted to Christianity and he uh, made it now he made Christianity now an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. So they stopped being persecuted. And then after him came Theodosius I. And Theodosius I made actually Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. So you can see how within just a few hundred years, the Christianity went from being this small group of people to now becoming the state religion for the entire Roman Empire, which was very significant. But here's what happens. In 395 AD, <laughs> excuse me, Theodosius divides the empire in half for his two sons, Arcadius and Honorius. And so The Roman Empire splits into the Western Rome and the Eastern Roman Empire. Unfortunately, the Western Roman Empire doesn't last long, and it falls in 476 AD and eventually becomes the kingdoms that we know as Britain, France, Spain, Germany, Italy, etc. Their state religion in, in the Western Roman Empire was the Roman Catholic Church, the Western Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, the other half, called the Byzantine Empire, covering the modern countries of Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt, survived until 1454, so a 1,000 years longer than the Western Roman Empire. And their official state religion... Um, was the Eastern Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox Church. So if you've ever wondered, oh, like, what are these churches? That's what happened. The two empires split, and so you've got the Roman Catholic Church and then the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church. If you were born in any of these two empires during the next thousand years of history, your family would take you as a baby to either the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek orthodox church and they would baptize or christen you as a baby into membership of that church. So everyone who was born in those empires were pretty unless you know you are a minority of course there are always minority groups but the majority state religion was um, that was it and you didn't really have a choice. So can you imagine what it meant then to be a christian then? Everybody was a christian including the murderers and those who manipulated and corrupted. And everybody was a Christian. So the word meaning of Christian, you can see, evolved during those thousand years when Christianity was just the accepted norm of culture and society. Then in 1517, um, Martin Luther inadvertently starts the Protestant Reformation. He didn't mean to, but he said, hey, here's some, some things that are wrong in, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church's way of doing things um, and, and what they're sharing. And, and a lot of that was because these Christians, especially the Christian leaders, were the ones that were actually violating people's rights. They were the ones that were stealing. They were the ones that were um, behaving appallingly. And so he looked at all that and said, hey, this is actually not Christian. right? This is actually not what uh, the Bible shares And they didn't like that very much, so they kicked him out. And so he inadvertently started um, the Protestant Reformation, which then started a whole chain of events of other reformers. And I've just got a few for you on the screen who who looked at the Bible and said, Oh, you know what? Here's actually what the Bible says about this, you know? And here's, you know, at the time they were selling um, indulgences saying, Hey, if your loved one has died and you want them to go to heaven, if you pay us this much money, then they can. They can go to heaven. So you literally bought your way to heaven. And so you can tell, you can see how much the truth of the Bible had been corrupted during those thousand years. And so then, so then the Protestants came along and said, hey, here's a truth that we have forgotten about, or here's something that we've been doing wrong. And so one by one, the reformation started happening over the next several hundred years. It's interesting because when you look at history, rulers of kingdoms or states often dictated what particular Christian denomination one embraced. So it wasn't, it was still, even after the Reformation, it still wasn't, even though individuals made choices, the general norm of society was whatever the king or whatever the prince of your region adopted as their faith became the state religion. So for example, King Henry VIII, um, oopsie, am I. Pressing the wrong buttons, yes, I am. King Henry VIII, the bottom picture there, uh, wanted to divorce his wife Catherine. Of course, the Catholic Church didn't uh, permit divorce. So then he said, I am creating the Church of England. And um, he is the head. And even now, every member of the British royal family is christened into the Church of England. By the way, the Church of England is basically the Anglican Church. And so if um, you, you see the Anglican Church, as the Church of England. Um and the Queen holds the defender of the faith and supreme governor of the Church of England the title. So that's this is it's so important to look at history because if we have to understand why we are where we are. Um, it's because of where we have been. Of course, in Australia, because we were colonized by the British, um, that's the reason why you have so many Um, in Australia, as well as uh, Roman Catholics, because a lot of immigration happened from the the western parts of Europe (laughs) as well, from that uh, map earlier. And that is why to this day, at the start of every day in the Australian Parliament, the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the Senate lead the Lord's Prayer in the Upper House and Lower House. Did you know that? When I visited, um, we visited Canberra, Roy and I, and you know we went into the park and we're like, oh, Lord, let's watch. And we heard the prayer and we were shocked because we didn't realize they still did that, but they do to this day. And it's in controversy. It, there's a lot of controversy about it, but they still do it. Does that mean that they're Christians because they're reciting the Lord's Prayer? What does it mean to be a Christian? You can see how that meaning and that word and that title the meaning has changed over time. So let's go back to the beginning. What was the original meaning of the word Christian? We see that, as I said it before, that the Christians were disciples. The Greek word there is um, the word that we translate today as disciple. Now, that's not a word that we use every day. Okay, It's, it's a very biblical word, disciple. What does it mean? A disciple is a student, but not just any student, not just anyone who wants to learn. Let me explain a little bit about who the Talmud or the disciple were in the first century. You see, the Jewish boys and girls um, in the first century would go to their synagogues, their schools until they were 13 years old, and they would memorize scripture. They would have, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, all those books in the Old Testament. Um, they would memorize them, whole Psalms, whole books. And not only memorize them, but they would learn how to interpret them. And the rabbi, the teacher, would ask questions. How do you read this? How do you understand this? And they would have dialogue. Now, the rabbi or the teacher would keep their eyes out to see who were the most, the brightest, Right? those who responded the best, those who interpret the most um, you know, complicated passages the best. Now, the girls after 13 would usually um, go home and, and remain at home until marriage. Um, and the boys after 13 would, would go on to learn a trade. They would go and be an apprentice somewhere, you know, whether it's fishing or whether it's carpentry. Um, they would go and, and learn that until marriage as well. But the few of the brightest and the best pupils we'd get a tap on the shoulder from the rabbi. And the rabbi would say, hey, I have chosen you to come to the Bet Midrash, which is the house of study. I hope I'm saying that right, Olivia. <laughs> right? They would say, come to the house of study for a special privileged group. And so then they would come. And after studying with the rabbi for several years, he would then pick a handful from even that and say, come, follow me, be my disciple. Because they, the rabbi knows this is somebody who is going to take everything I've taught them and can pass it on to someone else so that my legacy and my teaching can continue. Around 18, the student can marry. At 20, they could start a vocation to support themselves. But at 30 was the age of authority when that disciple can now go be a rabbi. Families and villages would support that individual because they knew it was such a privilege and honor to be chosen. Right? The whole village would say, oh, there's the tamid, there's the disciple. Right? And there was an honor and a privilege and they would go and learn from them. The rabbi-talmid relationship was intense and personal. There was no curriculum or agenda, but it was a multi-year experience of continual, daily, relational, living experience. Where the rabbi would observe the disciple's life and ask questions. Why do you do it this way? And the disciple would observe the rabbi and say, hmm, why do you do life this way? And they would have dialogue and they would study together. So now that you have that understanding of what a disciple meant in the first century, you see that Jesus at the age of 30, when he has now rabbinical authority, right? Even though he was never taught at one of their schools, he learned direct from God himself. He comes and begins his ministry at the age of 30, and here's what happens. The following day, John, this is John the Baptist who was called by God to kind of be the one preparing the way for Jesus, telling everybody that Jesus was coming. And this John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want, he asked them. And they replied, Rabbi. You see, they recognize, hey, you have something to teach us. Where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. And then look what happens next. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these two men who heard what John said and followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus doesn't start expounding from scripture about how he is the Messiah. Okay? He doesn't start a long discourse and sermon about how he is divine. He simply says, come. Come and see. Come, spend time with me. And when they do, they realize, hey, he is the Messiah. In a very short amount of time, they feel that conviction, and immediately they then go invite others to come and see for themselves. I love how when, you know, that Nathaniel's a bit like, oh, Nazareth. It's like, oh, you're from the western part of Melbourne. Like, you know, and, and there's that prejudice. There's that prejudice of about, about Nazareth as a city. It's a great place, western side of Melbourne. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but that was the prejudice. And so then the... The prejudice in Nathaniel makes him think, oh, I don't know, I'm a bit skeptical. And instead of arguing with him, instead of saying, great men have come from Nazareth, or instead of going through all that, right, he simply says, come and see for yourself. I feel like sometimes as Christians, we try so hard to convince and convict and prove and expound that we forget that simple invitation, come and see. Sometimes we think we have to understand how to give all the Bible studies in the world before we invite someone to church. But all you need to say is, hey, I'm going to church. You want to come with me? And if they have an excuse or a reason, that's fine. But if they're like, "Uh, what's it like? Come and see. Come and see. These men who went and experienced their time with Jesus, they didn't just wonder from afar. I wonder what, I wonder if John the Baptist is right. I wonder if Jesus is the Messiah. Let's see. Let's see. They weren't at a distance just observing. They walked over to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we want to be with you. Where are you staying? Right? That, that's a very intimate question, right? You don't usually meet people and say, hey, where do you live? People step away like, oh, it's creepy stalker, right? But The fact that they're saying, Jesus, where do you live? They're saying, hey, we actually want to spend time with you. We want to be with you. And so if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a disciple, that first step is actually to go and spend time with him. We can't just look at him from a distance. We can't just listen about him stories. We have to actually go and be with Jesus. And you know what's interesting? You would think that you know, they've already said, Wow, he's the Messiah, we found the Messiah. So you would think, okay, they're done. They're convicted, they're good. Not at all. Oh, here, a whole year and a half go by where they're with Jesus day in and day out. They're witnessing his miracles of healing, they're listening to his his teachings, right? They can see his authority. But a year and a half into their Talmud and disciple, you know, that rabbi Talmud relationship, something happens. Their previous rabbi, John the Baptist, gets imprisoned. Now, even though they're following Jesus now, they're very fond of John the Baptist. They know he's a man of God. And so they cannot understand why Jesus doesn't do anything about it especially because Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is the deliverer. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament scriptures that they had studied since their little boys, was supposed to deliver Israel from oppressors, right? From the Roman Empire, from Herod, from all these people that put John the Baptist in prison. This is exactly what the Messiah is supposed to do. And Jesus is not doing anything. It's his own cousin, for goodness sakes. Why is Jesus not even visiting him in prison? So they start to doubt. And you know what happens to doubt? It creates anxiety about their future. Oh, man, if, if Jesus is not really the Messiah we've been waiting for, you know, we, we, we thought we'd follow him for years, and then he's going to declare his coronation, and then he's going to be king, and then we're going to be right there, his right-hand side, you know, we're going to be serving in the court. But if Jesus is not going to be that Messiah, I need to make sure that I figure out my financial security for the future. I need to take care of my family. So they go back to fishing. Doubt drives anxiety, anxiety drives fear, and fear drives work that sometimes brings about nothing. They fish all night long, and they catch nothing. Doubt, discouragement, anxiety, fear, stress, and now exhaustion... And they're washing their nets, right? They, it's the morning now. No point now. They bring the boats in, they're washing the nets. And here's what the Bible says happens next. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in to hear, listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Good pulpit, right? And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, we worked hard, right? We weren't snacking. We worked hard all last night and we didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, year and a half of following his teacher, right? There's some obligation. There's some trust. So if you say so, there's respect. He's like, okay, I don't think anything will happen. But out of respect, I will let the nets down again. And this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. And a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon, both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. I love what happens next. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught and the others were as well with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. You see, this is the second call of Jesus. The first call of Jesus a year and a half before was, come and see. Come come and be with me. Come follow me. Be my disciple. But here Jesus is now giving him a second call of a greater commitment saying, hey, now I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now that you realize that you need me, and i'm going to take care of you right sometimes in our in our christian walk we, we begin excited about who jesus is and excited about the promises of god but then as we go along the christian journey we realize oh being a christian doesn't mean that i don't face difficulties being in prison doesn't uh, sorry john the baptist was imprisoned right and and he was he was such an important man of god and and he faced eventual death being a christian doesn't mean that Everything in our life is going to prosper, and that god doesn't bring us that doesn't allow trouble in our lives and 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 once Peter had come to that point where he realizes, but you know what, God is still going to take care of you. God is still in control, and it's in that moment that Peter says and confesses, and this is what a christian's life is it's a season of of you know, hallelujahs, season of discouragement and doubt, seasons of revelation and inspiration, seasons of darkness and silence, right? It's a journey. And in and in this moment Peter confesses, I have been doubting you. I am a sinful man. I had I had all these, you know, thoughts of anxiety and fear that, that you were not who you claim to be, but now I I know you are the Messiah. And it's funny how he says, Leave me, but he's like clean to the feet of Jesus. Leave me but don't leave me, right? I need you, he realizes. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Does this mean they never doubt again? Fast forward another year and a half and what happens? Jesus dies on the cross, once again shattering their expectations of what they thought Jesus would do for them and what Jesus would do for for Israel Instead of wearing a crown of jewels, Jesus wears a crown of thorns. And he dies a criminal's death instead of receiving the coronation ceremony. And the disciples are once again shattered and discouraged and in doubt. Inconsolable weeping. Not only that, but Peter goes so far as to betray him. Denies him three times. What does it mean to be a disciple? Does it mean we're perfect? Perfect. What does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus resurrects three days later, and then he appears to the disciples. Then he does something amazing. He appears to the disciples, uh, not all of them this time, just seven of them, the ones who are the fishermen, Peter, James, John, Andrew, you know, the fishermen. There they are once again fishing, right? Once again at that critical point in their lives where they're like, okay, well, Jesus is Was dead, but now he's alive. They're trying to wrap their heads around, what does this mean for me? Because now he's saying he's going back back up to heaven, so I won't be following him around anymore. What am I going to do with my life? They're back at fishing now. Whenever they're uncertain, go back to what they know. So there they are fishing again. But once again, they've caught nothing. Once again, they've caught nothing. And Jesus comes along and once again provides a miraculous catch of fish. But this time, you know, before they left everything, they caught all that fish, they left it all, followed him. But this time, Jesus tells them, bring the fish down. He knows I'm leaving. You need that fish, right? <laughs> he says, bring the fish to shore. And he says, but I've already cooked you breakfast. So there's Jesus roasting bread and fish over the coals, making breakfast for his disciples, which is kind of amazing. And then after breakfast, here is the third call. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the, third, the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Third call. Three years. <laughs> Three and a half years. And Peter follows Jesus. He takes care of the sheep, meaning the people, right? the the new believers as well as those who have been following um, Jesus and now need someone else to, to guide them. Does it mean that he was perfect? No. The book of Acts describes some of the mistakes he made even after this. But he was a disciple, someone who was always willing to learn from Jesus, who was always willing to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. There's another version of the call that we find in Matthew chapter 28, not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. He says, this is the 11 disciples. um, That's because Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, has died, left for Galilee, going up to the mountains where Jesus had told him to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him but some of them doubted. Isn't that amazing? Even after Jesus resurrected, even after all that, some still doubt. He still used them and called them. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you can say this was the fourth call or the final call right there's many calls that jesus gives to us but it starts out with that simple come and see come and see come and see what jesus is like come and see what church is like come and see what community means right come and see and then and then after some time of of experiencing that there is that second call come come and follow me, right? That deeper commitment to, to get baptized, to join the church, to, to be involved, to, to now be somebody that can be relied on by God to carry on his work. And then there's that call to learn and grow and then lead someone else to Jesus, to make disciples. Sure, you're going to have seasons of doubt. Sure, you're going to fail, right? Sure, your understanding of God is going to change as you mature in him but you will always be seeking and learning and confessing and worshiping and sharing him with others. That's what it means to be a Christian. For the past 2,000 years, there have been many who were Christians in name but who gave Christianity a bad name. They didn't submit their hearts to Jesus to learn from him, right? They weren't disciples. They had their own agenda and they wanted to follow it rather than submitting to the authority of Jesus and, and learning from him. But thankfully, there have always been Christians who throughout the centuries have been disciples of Jesus who followed his golden rule of doing to others as we would like them to do to us. And it is through those Christians that democracy was birthed and social justice and social reform and justice and equality that we get to enjoy in the Western world and in parts of the areas where those principles were shared. It's not about how much we know or how much we've done or not done in the past. It's about listening and saying yes to Jesus today and tomorrow and the day after that. In two weeks' time, five individuals in our church are answering the call. Adam, Andy, Cameron, and Karina have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and they've made the commitment to get baptized. Maxine has already been baptized in another church, but she is answering God's call to commit herself to this church through a profession of faith. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to hear their testimonies. They're all going to be sharing uh, from their own words, their journey. And so I want to invite you all to, to make sure you're there because the reason why a baptism service is public is because not only are they saying to others, hey, I'm committing to God, but it's an opportunity for us as a community to say, hey, we're committing to you to support you and to help you in your Christian walk. Have you heard God's call to you? Perhaps it's the first call to come and see. Perhaps it's the beginning of your journey as a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to spend time getting to know him by reading his word, by spending time in prayer, by immersing yourself into a church community? Perhaps you have had glimpses of God's power and goodness and mercy, and you, you already know he's the Messiah, but now he's calling you to a deeper commitment where you know despite the challenges of life, right? despite the fact that Christianity, embracing Christianity doesn't mean that my life is now ironed out of all its wrinkles, but now you understand that Christianity is about that living relationship with Jesus, and perhaps it is time for you to also decide to get baptized or to join this church community, whether it's through a profession of faith or a transfer of membership by saying, I'm committed to this local body of Christ. Like I said, in a fortnight, I'm going to be preaching about the cost of discipleship, and then following, I'm going to preach about why does church membership matter? And so I'm going to be speaking more about that. But it does matter, just a preview thought, (laughs) and I'll explain why. Perhaps you've been a disciple for a while. You were baptized years ago and you've been a member of a local church and you've been involved for years, whether it's this one or another one if you're watching online. But like the early disciples, you have experienced seasons of discouragement, doubt. And perhaps difficult circumstances in your life or in the state of the things around us is making you wonder where is my future with Jesus? And maybe it's time for you to step out in faith and say, I've tried it before and it didn't work. But because you said so, I will obey. Or perhaps it's been a long time since you have actually led anyone to Jesus. Many, many Christians go to church their whole lives. And if asked the question, name one person you have led to Jesus, can't think of anyone. Perhaps it's time to answer the call to become a fisher of men, to invite others to come and see, to invest your time and effort into someone and caring for them and leading them to Jesus. Wherever you are in this journey of discipleship, I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit's call. And because I care about this so much, (laughs) I'm going to do something I've never done before here which is to play the guitar and sing a song. <laughs> um, Roy usually plays, but he's not here. And it was I was like, gosh, I should ask someone else. But anyways, I'm going to try my best. I haven't played in years. But um, it's a song that is very simple, but that s- speaks so much. Um, it's called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. So please sing along with me.
1: Sun Please bow your heads with me for prayer.
0: Father God, call us to follow you. Pursue us and bother us and lure us and move us to answer your call. To be your disciple. To put you first. To commit to, to reading and praying and being active in your, in your body, the local church. So that you can be lifted up and the world can know that you are the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Forgive us for not recognizing the incredible privilege of discipleship and help us to make the most of that relationship every day. And, Father God, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed except for mine, Father, if there is anyone here today who wants to answer your call to come and see you better through personal Bible studies, can you move in their hearts and prompt them to raise their hands while every head is bowed and every eye is closed If there is anyone here who wants to come and see who Jesus is through personal Bible study, just raise your hand. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, Father God, if there is anyone here today who wants to answer your call to be baptized and make a commitment to follow you, can you inspire their hearts and prompt them to raise their hands? And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, Father God, if there is anyone here today who wants to recommit their lives to you and recommit to leading others to Jesus, can you prompt them to raise their hands? Father God, I commit Melbourne City Adventist Church to you. I commit myself to this church. And I commit, Father, to working and following with you, to... Help this body of Christ raise you up in Melbourne in such a way that we can make disciples of all the nations here in Melbourne. And Father, we pray that as we learn what it means to be a disciple more um, every day and every week, that Father, you would call us to deeper waters, that you would call us to, to higher heights, and that Father, we will have a more intimate relationship with you and a more meaningful experience of what it means to be a Christian. So that, Father God, as a result, people would understand that Christian is is a sweet word, that it's a a meaningful word that bears the character of Christ. And I pray, Father, that we be agents of changing the the negative connotations of Christianity here in Australia and here in Melbourne. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to empower us through that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have the Father's Day Tribute now. Um, So if you are a dad... Um, or a father figure, come on up, and we are going to have um, a prayer for you. And if you're a little child here, come on up so you can give your dad a present. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these dads. Um, Every single father here is such a spectacular example of what it means to be like you, our Heavenly Father, and I just ask that you would continue to give these dads strength and wisdom and compassion and humility so that they can lead their children um, in the way that you would want them to. And that they can spend time with you and follow you so that as you lead them, they can lead their children. Father, we ask good health that um, you would you would just... Um, bless them physically that you would bless them spiritually emotionally mentally and financially father that they would um, be able to to bless their children every day without having fear or anxiety about the future for them and father we pray also for um all our fathers um wherever they may be in the world that you would watch over them this weekend and bless them and fathers and some of us for some of us who no longer have our fathers with us, I just pray that you would remind us that you are a Heavenly Father and that you are there for us and with us and that um, we never have to be alone and that we always have your guidance. And so, Father, we thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We ask that um, as we go into our discussion time that we'll be able to experience um, community and fellowship um, and that, Father, this whole weekend would really be uplifting to you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.